Thank you, Joanna. Friends, let's pray before we begin our sermon today. Father, we um, beg you uh, that you may be merciful to us as we study your word. There's a lot we need to cover here, uh, as you know, uh, in, this, in this one small passage. So, Father, be gracious and strengthen our minds as we try and comprehend it. Be gracious and enlarge in our hearts as we try and fall in love with the truths you've revealed here and let it affect our actions and our everyday lives. Lord, be with us. Make your word, your infallible and errant word, effective in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, friends, we're taking a quick break from our series and the sermon uh, uh, through the book of John. And the next three weeks, we're going to finish off another series that we've been doing, which is a series that goes to the life of Jacob, which really is a story about God's faithfulness in Jacob's life. God here is seen as faithfully keeping his promise to Jacob despite of Jacob's own rebellion and despite of Jacob's sin. Now, you won't truly, we won't truly appreciate this passage unless we see this part of Jacob's life that we just read in light of the full story of Jacob's whole life and whole story. So, we have to see what God promised Jacob. Well, God's promise to Jacob goes all the way back. It didn't begin in Jacob. It goes all the way back to a promise God made Abraham, who was Jacob's grandfather. Stick with me. Jacob's grandfather uh, uh, sent down or, or blessed, used this, uh, gave God's blessing to Isaac, his son, who is Jacob's father. And then, later we read uh, in Genesis um, chapter 12, well, we see that in Genesis chapter 12, what promise is it that God gave Abraham? You see God giving Abraham a promise that he will one day be the father of many descendants and that his children, his offspring will be a great nation. Now to us, this promise that God gave Abraham and that Abraham passed down to Isaac may not seem like a big deal, but to people back then, it was very important because a lot of people, a lot of uh, descendants and a big nation represents workforce to gather food and water, represents manpower to build secure city with walls, represents an army to protect themselves from outside threats and outside nations. See, a great nation is a guarantee that they'll be provided for and that they'll be protected. Really, it's everything you needed back then. So in other words, when God was promising Abraham that he'll have descendants and he'll have a lot of offsprings and he'll have this big nation, it's not just talking about a big family, but the picture here is God saying that, Abraham, I'm going to give you a future peace. Or, as we'll call it in the sermon, God promised Abraham a future shalom. Now this promise of a future shalom that God gave Abraham, Abraham gave to his son Isaac, and if you read on, uh, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the younger son, Esau is the elder son. But this meant that Isaac had to choose between Jacob and Esau. Which of his sons, his descendants, will be the beneficiary of this future promised shalom that God has painted for Abraham and passed down to Isaac? Which son will become the father of this great nation that God promised Abraham years ago? Is it the younger brother Jacob or is it the older brother Esau? Well, stick with me. We're going to continue the story here. Genesis 27, we see that Isaac decided to give this promise to Esau, the older brother. Not Jacob, the younger brother. But then, in Genesis 27, we see Jacob stealing it from Esau. 
when the old and blind Isaac wanted to officially bless the eldest son Esau with this blessing, Jacob stole Esau's clothes, pretended to be his older brother, which tricked blind Isaac into giving up uh, this blessing to Jacob when he actually wanted to give it to Esau because he was blind and he couldn't see and he relied on his senses and his smell to know who it is he was giving it to. So in other words, uh, Jacob ended up getting the blessing instead of Esau and this got Esau really angry. Esau wanted to kill Jacob. Jacob ran away to a place called Padan Aram. He married two women there called Rachel and Leah, had a family, raised a lot of cattle, and became a really wealthy man. Okay, that's the background. Now, fast forward 20 years. Chapter 31, one chapter before our passage today. While Jacob is in Padan Aram, God spoke to Jacob. God reminded him of the promise of this future shalom that was still in his possession. He stole it from Esau. He told Jacob to go back home so that God can make him into this great nation and fulfill this promise shalom. Uh, Genesis 31 verse 3, God uh, told um, Jacob while he was in Padan Aram, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I will be with you. This is where our passage comes in in verse 1. Read chapter 32 verse 1. It says, Jacob went on his way. His way where? Well, he was going back from Padan Aram to his home country trusting that in his home country, God will fulfill this promised shalom that was promised to Abraham and that was given down to Isaac and that was going to be given to Esau, but then Jacob stole it. Okay, now, it's all very confusing. There's a lot of things we haven't addressed yet, such as, what in the world does any of this have to do with me today? Or another confusing question why would God tell Jacob to claim something that he stole? Isn't the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal? How is it fair then that God would still allow Jacob to keep this future promised shalom when it wasn't rightfully his in the first place? Well, I hope as we study this passage, we'll answer some of these questions, and I hope we see that the promise God made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob is actually a promise God is making to you and I here today. And now this promise, if we truly see it and embody it, should soothe our ever-anxious hearts and sturdy our feeble knees and cause us to, like Jacob in this passage, live and walk boldly unto God and into his promised shalom. Three things I want to point out. Why we possess God's promised shalom, how we are to live toward God's promised shalom, and what is God's promised shalom? Why we possess God's promised shalom, how we are to live toward God's promised shalom, and what is God's promised shalom? Point number one, why we possess God's promised shalom? Or really, why does Jacob possess God's promised shalom? So let's go back to the passage. We've seen here that Jacob went on his way back home from Padan Aram to Beersheba, where God will um, make this reality of a promised shalom happen into a great nation. And in verse 1, as he's on his way back, we see that God sent angels to meet him in his journey as a way of encouragement. Keep going. Now, this is a much-needed encouragement because if you look at what Jacob would face in verse 3 in his journey back to his home country, who was who he going to face? Esau, his angry old brother who he stole this inheritance from 20 years ago. 
That's why Jacob sent all the cattle you see in verses 4 and 5. As a gift to Esau, in hope to appease his anger, he might still be angry at me. But when Jacob's messengers came back, after they saw Esau, to his terror, Jacob realized that Esau has grown much stronger. How do we know that? Look at verse 6. The messenger said, Esau has 400 men with him. Now, the number 400 men in the Old Testament doesn't literally mean 400 men. It, it's supposed to represent a whole army. Just like in English, we say the whole nine yards. We're not actually talking about nine yards. We're talking about the whole thing. See what I'm saying? So when there's 400 armies, he's saying there's a whole army. It well could be more than 400 people. Now let's appreciate how difficult this would have been for Jacob. Verse 7 says, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Well, of course he'd be. He had to face his brother, who was potentially still angry at him. You know how hard it is to face an old friend or a family member that you've grown apart from and haven't talked to in years? It's hard. I would much rather just sweep it under a rug and not see him ever again. I mean, it's just really hard to do that, to just reconcile and talk to him. What makes it harder is that his brother now has a whole army with him. Imagine this person that you are in conflict with is actually much, much, much more powerful than you are. And what makes it even, more hard, even harder is that Jacob realizes all this was his fault. He stole the blessing. He caused this dissension. He is what broke their relationship. In other words, if Jacob here is to continue to walk in and toward God's promised shalom of becoming this father of a great nation, he had to risk a lot. He had to face a family member that he's in conflict with who has the power to destroy him and has all the right to do so because the whole thing was Jacob's fault in the first place. But also, he had to risk not only his own life, but his family's life. Look at verse 11. Jacob's prayer to God, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. Jacob here brought his old family with him. Think about that. If Jacob were to trust God and to move toward uh, God's promised future shalom and to follow God's call to pursue it, he had to risk everything. Everything. And that's what we see him doing in this passage. He didn't run away like he did in the past. He didn't manipulate and cheat his way out of it like he would have in the past. He's different now. There's this grit about him that made him push forward with integrity despite of all the risks. He prayed to God, then he moved forward to face Esau, humbly giving peace offerings, admitting his faults, asking for Esau's forgiveness. But how is it Jacob is able to have such trust in God? How can you and I today walk toward God's promised shalom with such integrity and faith? How can we have this kind of grit well, take a look at the beginning of Jacob's prayer in verses 9 to 10. Here's what Jacob said. This is interesting. We'll see a lot of things about how Jacob viewed God from these two verses. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. First, verse 9. Jacob said, Notice, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. 
This tells you Jacob believes that God is eternal. God existed when his grandfather was there. God existed when his father was there. God existed when Jacob's there. God is eternally sovereign, in control, in power. He has all things under his hands. You see, one, he believed, God, Jacob believed God is sovereign. If you want to have such confidence in God to move forward towards his promises, you have to believe that he's sovereign. Second, not only is he sovereign, verse 10, we see that Jacob believed God was gracious. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. So, what gave Jacob the courage to move forward with faith and integrity towards God's promised future shalom, even if it meant he had to risk everything, his life, his cattle, even his family, because he was absolutely certain that God was sovereign and gracious. Now, that, that concept is very weird to us, and perhaps it's kind of intangible. What does it mean that God's sovereign and in control and that God's gracious? Now, how does that help us move toward boldness uh, to God's promise? Well, let, let's try and make it more tangible for us today. Stick with me here. I think this will help explain it. If I ask you, why did Jacob end up receiving God's promised shalom from his father Isaac? Why was he the one that ended up with it? Why wasn't it Esau that ended up with it? It would be correct to say because Jacob lied, because Jacob tricked his father, and because Jacob robbed it from Esau. And like a coward, he ran away. It would be correct to say that. But now, look at it from God's eyes. Let me ask you the same question. Why did Jacob end up receiving God's promised shalom from his father Isaac? Why was Jacob the one that ended up with it and not Esau? Let me read something that God said to Jacob's parents a long time ago before Jacob was even born. And then you tell me why, from God's perspective, Jacob was the one that ended up with this promise. Genesis 25, 23, 21 to 23. This is before Jacob and Esau was born. And Isaac, Jacob's father, prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, This is Jacob and Esau in Rebekah's um, um, womb. Two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. Note, the older shall serve the younger. Pay close attention to that last sentence. The older will serve the younger. Which of Isaac's children did God say will be the one to receive this promised shalom? The older or the younger? The younger. Jacob, not Esau. In God's, in God's eyes, this promise has always been meant for Jacob. So one more time. Why did Jacob end up receiving God's promised shalom? Why was he the one that ended up with it? The answer, not ultimately because he lied to his blind father. Not ultimately because he stole it from his older brother Esau. But because from the very beginning, even before Jacob was born, God has sovereignly purposed this blessing for Jacob, not Esau. We're not okay with that, are we? Why not? Because he lied. <laughs> he robbed. He stole. And like a coward, he ran away. Does God allow that kind of behavior? Absolutely not. So then why did God plan to give it to Jacob? Because of grace. <laughs> he didn't deserve it. 
I know, that's what grace is. You don't deserve mercy. And God wasn't surprised. God knew Jacob was going to do that all along. Look at Psalm 139, verses 1 to 4. This is a truth about who God is. Oh, Lord, the psalmist says, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, oh, Lord, you know it together. Before a word of lie was able to come out of Jacob's mouth, God knew of it. But yet, before he was born, God vowed himself to this hopeless sinner in chapter 25. And when Jacob cowardly ran away after wrongfully robbing his brother, God assured Jacob that he was still with him through a dream in chapter 28. And now 20 years later, on Jacob's way back home, in verse 1 of our passage, God sent his angels again, saying, I'm still here, Jacob. I'll always be here, and I'll never let you go. I know this kind of sovereign grace is foreign to us, and it's hard to accept, perhaps, but to assure us this is not a plot line I'm making up on my own, let's go to the Apostles, Apostle Paul's words in Romans chapter 9, verses 10 to 12, in regards to God's sovereign grace in Jacob's life and in our lives, if we have received Christ as Lord and Savior today. Paul, Romans 9, verses 10 to 12. And not only so, but also when Rebekah, remember, Jacob's uh, mother, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Friends, if today you're sitting here and you've received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and if you're sitting here today and you're walking toward God's promised shalom in the age to come, it didn't happen because you accidentally walked into a good church. It didn't happen because you, by chance, got to know a faithful Christian friend who just happened to bring you to a good Bible study. It's not by chance you heard the gospel through the Christian family that you were just randomly born into. If you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior here, and if you're currently living in and walking toward Christ and His future promised shalom, it's because before any of us did anything good or bad, God has claimed you for Himself. He's not surprised. He's aware of your sins and what you've done and what you will do. Regardless, this sovereign, gracious God has vowed himself to you, saying, I've been here. I'm still here. I'll always be here. And I will never let you go. But wouldn't this kind of undeserved grace make us lazy? Wouldn't this lead us to abusing God's grace? I think it actually do the opposite. I think it actually encourages you, like Jacob, to move towards God's promise boldly. You know, in my 12 years of being in full-time ministry and seminary, the two top reasons of why I hear people not receiving Christ, in other words, the two top reasons of why people decide to not live and walk toward God's promised shalom are these. One, I don't deserve it. Two, if I do receive it, I'm not sure I'm able to maintain it. You see, what often prohibits people from following Christ and moving towards his promised shalom is not the laziness that comes out of believing in God's sovereign grace. More often than not, it's feeling like they don't deserve it. That's what stops them. And it's this fear that when they receive it, they're not going to be able to maintain it. That's what stops them. But what if? 
What if, just as we've seen in Jacob's life, your salvation was never meant to be deserved? What if, as we've seen in Jacob's life, your salvation was never ultimately up to you to maintain? What if it's all meant to rest upon his sovereign grace? We can no longer use the excuse, I don't deserve it. Or the excuse, I can't maintain it. It doesn't matter. He has wanted you for himself. See, knowing that your salvation in Christ, in other words, knowing that your walk in and toward God's promised shalom rests upon his sovereign grace from end to end won't make you reject it, won't make you lazy and timid. It'll make you boldly embrace it even when you don't deserve it and boldly continue in it even when you feel yourself rebelling against it because at the end of the day, you understand he's the one that's embracing you and he's the one that's holding on to you. You want to be able to move forward boldly, faithfully, courageously in your walk with Christ? Despite of the external threats that tell you to give up, from family that tell you to stop, from bombings in neighboring cities that scare you? You want to be able to continue to follow Christ even despite the internal discouragements of your own pet sins that seem to never ever go away? Then you must hear God say, It's always been meant for you. I've been here for you long before you were born. I'll remain with you regardless of what life throws your way. I'll persist with you even when you're rebelling and pushing me away. And I'll continue on with you long after life on earth here has ended. So child, keep going. But what does it look like to keep going? Second point. How are we to live toward God's promised shalom? Well, we see here Jacob doing two things. One, he prayed by asking God for what God has promised. Two, he lived by ordering his life according to God's promise. First, let's talk about his prayer. Jacob walked towards God's promise shalom by praying and asking God for what he's promised. This is very important. Verse 12, this is Jacob's demand from God. But you said, how, what audacity, right? But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. Now, it's very, very important to note, Jacob had the right to demand this from God because this is what God has said. You said. Jacob was only repeating God's promise that God made to him 20 years ago. Jacob did not presume to demand from God that which God has not promised him. Chapter 28 This is God's promise to Jacob 20 years ago. Verse 14, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. But you said, 20 years later, Jacob said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as a sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered, multitude. Now, praying like this is very important as we walk towards God's promise shalom. Why? Because our prayers, friends, affect our hearts. See, in a sense, we can say that our hearts is like a canvas and our prayers could be said as a paintbrush. When you consistently pray and demand from God the picture of a future promised shalom that he has promised you through his word, you're painting upon your hearts God's promised shalom. But when you pray for things that God has not promised, such as health, wealth, and prosperity on earth, What you're doing is you're painting upon your hearts your own version of a future promised shalom. 
And whatever version of a future promised shalom you're painting upon the canvas of your heart, that's going to be the picture that you're going to be drawn toward. That's going to be the thing that's going to dictate your life. That's what you're going to live toward. James Smith, a professor of philosophy in Calvin College, in his great book, I recommend you to buy it and read it, You Are What You Love, describes humans as water. We never rest. We're always moving. We're always going around until we find the lowest spot. Or like hot air. We're never resting. We're always moving until we find the highest altitude. And if in this analogy we're water, the picture of a future promised shalom we have painted upon our hearts can be said as the lowest spot that we are naturally pulled toward. And if this analogy we're hot air, the picture of a future promised shalom we have painted in our hearts can be said as the highest altitude that we will naturally be drawn toward. Even non-Christians have this concept of a future promised shalom that they long for. Aristotle calls it the telos. The telos is a future desire, a picture of the good life, a version of a future shalom that we all are drawn towards and long for and arrange our lives accordingly. We all have a telos. We all have a picture of a future shalom painted across the canvases of our hearts and we're going to arrange our lives to it. For some of us, the picture of future Palma shalom, the painting on the canvas of our hearts may be this. We're on a stage. Picture it. We're dressed really well. We're making a speech at Forbes 30 under 30. Cameras are in front of you, the lights are behind you, and the full-packed stadium is cheering and applauding you. Or, for others, the canvas, the painting on the canvas of our hearts may not be on a stage, but you're in a house. It's Friday night, there's no school tomorrow, so it's family movie night. You're on a comfortable couch, with your two kids and a gorgeous but unbelievably committed spouse <laughs> whom you're having wine with while your children giggle hysterically at you as you comically steal popcorn from their bowl. Can you picture it? Or for some, you're on a beach. You're old enough, it seems, in this painting to be just out of retirement yet young enough to enjoy the results of a lifetime of great financial decisions. And the horizon line behind you, revealed by the gentle sunset over the ocean, feels like a victory line that you've crossed long ago. Can you picture it? Whatever it is for you, we all have a version of a future shalom. We all have a telos. I'm not saying those are bad pictures. If, you, if one of us makes it the fourth 30 on a 30, I'd be proud. And I haven't talked to Tati about this, but I'm hoping our family will have two movie nights a week and replace our dinners with popcorn way more often than we should. Enjoying the fruits of a of wise financial decision uh, uh, in your old age, it's not a bad thing. If the Lord grants you these things, they're not meant to be demonized. But to make those things your telos, to make those things your ultimate picture of future shalom that you ultimately gravitate towards, that you arrange your life according to, is to make this earth your home. And Christian, nothing can be further than the truth. 
For here we have no lasting city, Hebrews 13 says. But we seek the city that, we seek the city that is to come. And if you keep demanding from God your own version of telos, slowly but surely you'll find yourself no longer living toward God's promised shalom, but instead you'll turn toward your own version of promised shalom. So one, to live toward God's promised shalom, you must pray God's words back to him. Demand from him only that which he has promised. Paint your hearts with his version of future shalom. Well, I don't know the Bible enough to pray that way. That's okay. Let your prayers be guided by the Lord's prayer. Let it be guided by the Lord's prayer. Pray that every day. Our Father who art in heaven, that's how he revealed himself, Father. Hallowed be your name. Good. Let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a picture of future shalom. Um, give us this day our daily bread. Daily bread, not yearly steak. There's a life of simplicity there for you to encourage to follow. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Reconciliation. For thine is the glory and the kingdom forever and ever. Amen. Let that prayer guide your prayers. It doesn't be exactly those words, but the categories in that prayer, pray that to God every day, over and over and over again. That's how we walk towards God, Palmer Shalom, by praying Him the painting we want to see in our hearts, not our own version of Shalom, but His. But two, God's sovereign grace, believing in God's sovereign grace, didn't only lead Jacob to demand God and pray to God to fulfill His promise. It also made Jacob order his life accordingly to God's promise. Look at Jacob's actions in verse 13 to 20 as he faced Esau, who was a seeming threat for Jacob to achieve on his way to this promise shalom. How did Jacob act? He didn't just close his eyes and prayed and walk past Esau. What did he do? He admitted his faults and he became a peacemaker. Verse 13 to 15, he offered a peace offering. He had integrity. He was pure in heart. Instead of lying like he would have, verses 16 and 17, he said, tell, he told his servants, go tell my brother that I'm coming and that all these cattle belong to me. Tell him the truth. He became poor in spirit and he became meek. Instead of trying to manipulate and overpower his older brother like he did 20 years ago, in verse 20, he described himself as Esau's servant. Meekness, poverty of spirit, acknowledging that because of his past mistakes, he is in no position of authority over Esau. Peacemaker, pure in heart, poor in spirit, meek. Do those things sound familiar to you? Matthew 5, 3 to 9, Jesus, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Jacob prayed, but also he didn't get up and feel the need to lie and cheat and manipulate, relying upon his own power and devices to get to God's promise, but he trusted not only in God's promise, but also in God's way of how to get there. So he moved towards God's promise, God's way, because he has full confidence in the sovereign grace that his God has bestowed upon him. So how do we walk toward God's promise, Shalom? One, by making our prayers a way to align our hearts to God's version of future Shalom. Instead of making our prayers about aligning God to our version of future Shalom. The second we stop doing that, the second we stop aligning our hearts uh, to God's shalom is the second we're going to stop walking toward it 
and move towards ours instead. One, pray the Lord's Prayer to Him daily. Two, it's not just about prayer. We also must arrange our lives accordingly to God's future shalom as well. Trust Him. He's the one who's promised it to us. Do you think He needs our schemes and manipulations to fulfill it? No. We merely need to follow His word toward His promise, resting upon the assurance of His sovereign power and grace. Day by day obedience, meekness, poverty in spirit, peacemaking, purity in heart, merciful. So when temptation comes, when your family or friends persecute you for your faith, which happens a lot in this church, when things like the recent church bombings threaten your peace, when our own sin discourages us to keep going, first and foremost, remind yourself of his sovereign grace and then get on your knees. Paint your hearts boldly with a picture of his promise shalom guided by the Lord's prayer. Then get up and arrange your lives according to it, no matter the cost. That's how the Christian walks towards God's promise shalom. Now, as we end our sermon on our last point, I want to address something very important that we have not yet talked about. We've seen how, uh, why we possess God's promise shalom now is because God has sovereignly ordained it by mercy and grace uh, that now we may be partakers of it. And we've also seen how now that we are partakers of it, we should move toward it. But we have yet to talk about what is it we're moving toward? What is God's promise shalom? What is this painting that God has promised us and that should be painted across the canvas of our hearts. And God wants us to demand it of him. I mean, I see Jacob here, and the future promise shalom that God promised Jacob was a lot of descendants and a great nation that offers peace and security and provision for Jacob and his family at that time. But what is it for me? Am I supposed to want a big family too and make a kingdom out of my children? No. So what is God's promise to his people today? And how does, how does it have anything to do with me? Uh, how does God's promise to Jacob have anything to do with me? Last point, what is God's promised shalom? Friends, here we see how God's promise to Jacob applied to us today. You see, when you read God's promise to Jacob in verse 12, what does it say? I will make offspring as the sand of the sea. I'll make your offspring as the sand of the sea. When we read that, we're very quickly to assume that God is talking about multiple offsprings. Actually, in the Hebrew, the word offspring here has a singular tense, not plural. In other words, it could be said that God is not mainly referring to a lot of offspring, but to one offspring that will be made many, that will bless the nations. Who is this offspring that God is promising Jacob? Well, go to the New Testament. You read Matthew chapter 1, verse 2. You read the genealogy of Jesus. Guess where Matthew starts? Who is Jesus' forefather? Abraham, the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob. Keep reading, gets to Jesus. Why? To emphasize this. Jesus Christ is the promised offspring throughout the Old Testament. He is the one through whom God will make a people for himself. Listen to Paul's words again in the New Testament, Galatians 7, 29. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. If you are Christ, if you receive Christ as Lord and Savior, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. 
You see, the kingdom God had in mind when he made this promise to Abraham years ago that passed down to Isaac, that passed down to Jacob for a multitude's offspring, the one God had in mind, the great kingdom, is not ultimately Abraham's biological descendants, Israel, but it's you and I today. All those throughout the ages around the world who have placed their faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. Here, so here's the picture that God wants you to paint in your heart. God's telos that we're called to gravitate towards. God's shalom that we're supposed to pray and arrange our lives daily according to is Jesus and his kingdom reigning as king on his throne over his ransomed people. And it's actually painted for us in Revelation chapter 5. Here's the picture of the shalom you're called to live toward. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden uh, bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Picture this in your head. They sang a new song to this lamb that was slain, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. This is the picture. Now, one last thing. This picture, though, may not have gripped us. For some reason, we heard it, we read Revelation 5, and it, and it just didn't lure us toward it. We weren't attractive toward this telos. We don't find our hearts gravitating toward it like our hearts do gravitating towards that stage on Forbes 30 under 30. Well, perhaps it's because you missed an important detail of this picture. Take a look again at this king you're worshiping in verse 8. What did he look like? He looked like as if he was a sacrificial lamb that was slain. His body is wounded. Why was he slain? Why is he wounded? Verse 9 says, to ransom you, to ransom his people, to redeem his people for himself. See, his people, us, have denied him. We've replaced the shalom we're meant for with a picture of our own shalom. We have lived our lives with our own small kingdoms and our own glories in view instead of gravitating toward his kingdom come and his glory. We've used our time and our money and our gifts in pursuit of our future shalom, our own telos, not the one we're originally made for. And see, if God is the one who created us for the fulfillment of his kingdom come and not our own, when we're stingy and use our money for our own future telos instead of for the telos of his kingdom come, it's not just stinginess, you see, it's robbery. Because it's his money made to be used for the purpose of his kingdom come. When we're selfish with our time and use it only to pursue our own version of future shalom instead of for his kingdom work, it's not just bad time management, it's thievery, you see, because it's his time made for his glory. And when we allow our bodies to be used in a way which he has said not to, in pursuit of our own future picture of shalom, instead of to glorify him, it's not just unwise physical exposure, it's vandalism. Because these are, this is his body made to worship him. That's why he was slain. That's why he died on a cross for us. Because we all, like Jacob, has robbed that which is not ours. We've used it for ourselves. But to us, 
God didn't just send an angel to cheer us on like he did to Jacob. He sent his own son, the Lamb of God, to die for us on a cross, to be slain in our place, so that the promise that he's vowed to us before we were born will be made solidified on his cross. And now, through his cross, he can say, you see, I've always been there. I will be there. And I'll never let you go. And as we behold the sovereign grace fulfilled for us on that cross, a different telos now may be painted upon your hearts. His promised shalom of a kingdom where we worship this king that was slain for us eternally. That's the telos you should have painted across your hearts, Christian. Pray it and live according to it. To where you can live your life saying, to you who boast tomorrow's gain, tell me, what is your life? A mist that vanishes at dawn, all glory be to Christ. The world may go against you. You may experience things that you can't comprehend, sad events you can't make sense of, consequences of past mistakes you'd rather run away from, bombings in neighboring cities, repetitive discouragements of the endless cycle of our own sin. Hear God say on the cross, keep going. I vowed myself to you. I've made good on it upon my cross and I'll never let you go. Keep going. Keep praying for my kingdom come. Paint this picture upon the canvas of your heart. Gravitate toward it. Keep arranging your lives according to it no matter the cost. Because I, the sovereign and gracious God, have ransomed you and will be with you always till the end of age. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for making this earth our home. Forgive us that we've forgotten the one who's created us and redeemed us, that we've made our own version of future shaloms and our own telosses and our own picture of good life be the one that, that, that overtakes our prayers, be the one that we arrange our lives according to, be the one that um, uh, is painted upon the canvas of our hearts. Father, let us be reminded again on that cross who it is we're made for, what it is we're meant to push toward, and what it is we have ahead of us awaiting eternally. Thank you, Father, for being here, for vowing yourself to us even when we don't deserve it before we were born, for holding on unto us even despite a rebellion in our sin, and for continuing with us long after this age has ended. For thine is the kingdom and the glory forever and ever. Amen.